Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm joined by my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shelly Men. We hear the buzzwords AI, machine learning, big data, etc. when it comes to the financial markets. But what can data really tell us when it comes to how our money is invested? Can data be used to regulate the financial markets or turn our individual irrationality rational? Today, to find out this and more, we talk to Professor Andrew Lowe, the Charles and Susan Harris Professor of Finance at MIT's Sloan Business School. Andrew was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, with his work on financial markets spanning decades. So who better to get the investing advice from? So let's get started. Well, thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. And, uh, you know, over the years, I have uh, heard many, many of your talks, and I was incredibly impressed and inspired. I'm quite sure today's conversation will be the same. And I also want to thank you for your incredible support to uh, Harvard Data Science Review. You have written multiple articles. You have helped us to uh, review the articles. I really, really appreciate it. But today's topic is really about the financial market, because, as you know, there has been on many people's mind seeing the market you know, ups and downs. But let's just start with a, a very basic question from me, which is uh, the, the whole stock market of people using statistical data science for many, many years. And uh, I guess the you know, exchanges start in like 1792, and people probably have been doing forecasting since then. Uh, can you give us a, like a brief history of how data has been used uh, you know, in this financial market and uh, what is the you know, current you know, progress there. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on this podcast with you and Liberty. It's a pleasure to be here. And I would say that ever since financial transactions have existed, there has been data and therefore data science to try to forecast how markets are going to react. So if you go back to the ancient Babylon, the Mesopotamian times, you'll see that uh, there are all sorts of records of prices for wheat and other crops. And as soon as you start recording prices, people are going to want to forecast them initially by looking at geometric patterns, using astrology, using uh, bones and tea leaves. Uh, The whole idea of data science is really just a modern version of something that humans have been doing for literally millennia. Currently, what are the big use of the, you know, data? Like what we're doing now is different from this long history. Well, I would say that there are three changes that have really made a huge difference in what we do now uh, as opposed to what we did uh, many generations ago. The first, of course, is the fact that we have a deeper understanding of how markets work. So it's not just looking at various different prices and trying to understand if there are any patterns. It's being able to come up with economic models to explain those patterns and therefore to be able to predict more accurately The second is that we're now using computation in ways that we're never able to because we happen to have the technology to process much larger amounts of data and turn that data into information. And third is that I think human behavior has changed. Mm -hmm. And so the combination of those three changes uh, has really altered permanently the landscape of human evolution and how we deal with financial markets. It seems that data science 
helps understand sort of the volatility of the markets. And I know a lot of your work has been on that. You know, I think about my dad and there, as far back as I can remember, there has not been a single week where he has not been stressed or worried about what the market is doing. And so, you know, when everyone talks about right now, for example, being this really uncertain time in the market, is it actually this super uncertain time or how do we measure how volatile a market is? Is this just the random week there are things feel bad or is this special? Is this different than anything else? You know, I think every generation goes through a period where they think that their particular circumstances are unique and that uh, it's just more difficult than any other generations. But I think what we're seeing now is there are some commonalities. Granted, we have not had a pandemic the way that we've experienced over the last three years since 1918 with the influenza pandemic. So it is true that we are living through extraordinary times. And you can actually measure that with certain metrics. For example, it's not just the volatility of markets where we we have many measures for that, but it turns out that over the course of the last three years, the volatility of volatility uh, has actually been quite high. So, you know, it's a little bit like looking at acceleration versus velocity. Uh, The fact is that we are really changing the way we measure these kinds of risks. And those new metrics are telling us that we are definitely in very, very uncertain times. If you look at just what happened over the last year with the war in Ukraine, oil prices, and uh, the fact that we now have record levels of inflation as an aftermath of the pandemic, those are all things that are relatively unique to our circumstances. But you know, having said that, we also have to remember that even if history doesn't repeat, it often rhymes. And therefore, we have to come up with the kinds of patterns that we've seen in the past and make extrapolations. And from that perspective, I think it is a very uncertain time, but we see the light at the end of the tunnel and we're pretty sure it's not an oncoming train. We think that there are opportunities for us to normalize over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. So there's good reason to be optimistic in the end. What are the opportunities to normalize? What's the path forward over the next 12 to 24 months? Well, the first path forward is that we are getting out of the pandemic. And by getting out, I really mean we shut ourselves down for a two, two and a half year period. The best analogy that I can think of is that you know we put the entire world's economy into a medically induced coma. When you have a traumatic brain injury, we know that doctors can put you in a medically induced coma to reduce the swelling. And once it gets better, they wake you up. We are now in the process of waking up. And it's a very difficult process because we are now having to deal with a lot of the supply chain issues that we disrupted over the course of that two or two and a half year period. And as a result, inflation has gone through the roof. We are now managing it. So it looks like it's coming back down to a normal level. And over the course of the next year or two, we're going to see a number of jobs being created that really didn't exist over the last two years, and a number of people going back to work, going back to daily lives, whatever that means, a new normal, as it were. So I think that that's one path forward. The second path forward, we're going to be creating a number of new industries. And I think that's going to generate tremendous amounts of growth. What are going to be the new jobs? What are these new industries? Well, a number of the new sectors that have been emerging have to do with technology for dealing with the pandemic. For example, telecommunications. 
we're now using Zoom and, and all sorts of other ways of interacting, TikTok and the social media outlets that we didn't have before. That's one example. Uh, in biotech, we have now developed new ways of dealing with viruses, namely the mRNA vaccines, but that technology can be applied to many, many other things. So just over the course of the last couple of years, the fact that we've had to deal with the pandemic in certain ways has given us the opportunity to take those technologies and apply them much more broadly. Uh, and then, of course, we've got other industries like electric vehicles, autonomous driving, fusion energy. Those are areas where technology has made tremendous strides in the last few years. And we're going to see the consequences of those breakthroughs uh, in the coming decades. To follow up on that, Andrew, what do you think about specifically how data science is going to help this industry? Well, I would say that in every single one of those new industries, data science is at the center. For example, take autonomous driving. The only reason that we are able to think about driverless vehicles is because data science has advanced to the point where we can develop machine learning algorithms that can steer a car without any human intervention. I mean, that would not have been possible without the amount of data that we've been able to collect and the way of processing the data to generate pattern recognition technology that will allow a vehicle to be steered. Take mRNA vaccines. The way that we can sequence the human genome and other genomes has allowed us to be able to generate vaccines on demand. So we can effectively create the equivalent of a 3D printer to generate vaccines whenever we want. That is an amazing technology and it would not have been possible without data science. So really every single industry that I can think of that is emerging has emerged because of data science in one way or another. So I think that this is the new gold, the new oil uh, of the world today. Speaking of today, you know, we can't avoid to talk about FTX, you know, <laughs> fiasco. And um, I remember that this probably a year ago, um, you know, I attended one of the gathering by your MIT colleague, and you spoken very clearly about the danger or the instability of the cryptocurrency market. I was sitting there thinking, like, if I had any inclination I want to do something at a cryptocurrency, then I would have eliminated the thoughts after listening to your clear warning. Clearly, you anticipate a lot of those things, you know, unfortunately happen now. How did you assess these risks at the time? Was based on your experience, your study, your data? Well, you know, I wish I could claim credit for being able to forecast FTX. I didn't. I did forecast that there would be some disruptions in the currency markets uh, in, in crypto, mainly because it was growing so quickly and people were not doing the kind of due diligence that they normally would because they were so enthused about this market that you knew some kind of accident was waiting to happen. And yes, actually, it's by looking in past cases of stock market bubbles and financial market panics that you could tell that this is a problem that was developing. In particular, in the area of currencies, we actually saw in the 1800s the rise of many kinds of currencies as the West was being developed. You may have heard of the phrase wildcat banking. In those days, Banks were started up by a number of individuals that were trying to help the settlers in the West finance their operations. And you know those banks issued their own form of currency, these certificates with their various different pictures on them. And one of the most common and most widely circulated were certificates with pictures of wildcats on them, because that's the, one of the species that populated the West at the time. And these certificates were very popular 
But at some point, the banks overextended themselves and the currencies started to fail and people panicked. And eventually that led to the, the creation of the Federal Reserve System because it was pretty clear that the instability of these multiple currencies was creating a, a real roadblock to progress. So if you saw what happened in those cases where this enthusiasm for these new currencies and the ability to overextend and without the proper kinds of regulatory oversight, it was the same thing with cryptocurrencies. And, and by the way, it's not just cryptocurrencies, but any new asset class, when it first becomes popular and people overextend and they become irrationally exuberant, to use a phrase that Bob Schiller coined many years ago, you're going to see problems happening. But I would say that this is an example of progress in all industries where you've got you know two steps forward, one step back, but there is still progress. So cryptocurrencies are here to stay. I don't believe that these are flash in the pan, but I think that the particular cryptocurrencies that are being traded today may not exist if we see more of these instabilities occurring and you will have new currencies emerging that will deal with some of these instabilities to the point where at some, at some point you may end up seeing sovereigns issuing their own version of the cryptocurrencies. China has already issued it. I suspect that the United States will do that within the next uh, two or three years. We'll see FedCoin, as it were. Uh, and once um, governments start issuing cryptocurrencies, that will create a level of uh, stability that uh, is much badly needed in this uh, particular space. When you say that in some ways this cryptocurrency crash, you know, the, a new market is almost foreseeable, especially if you saw what happened with the banknotes and the creation of the Federal Reserve. Was it mainly, you know, who contributed to sort of this crazed investor sense around cryptocurrency? We're seeing these things where celebrities were leading the general public into investing in cryptocurrency. Or were sort of seasoned investors just as duped um, by this cryptocurrency craze? I think it was both. And I think that's pretty common when you have these types of bubbles. Basically, you have people that are anxious to get into an asset. And so they, in some cases, don't ask the questions that they normally would. They take for granted that something is worth investing in. Maybe they even follow the lead of certain celebrities, as you point out, or other key investors, and they don't do their own due diligence. Uh, they cut corners. That's the bottom line. But eventually they learn their lessons and um, unfortunately they learn it the hard way. And in this case, a number of innocent bystanders can be hurt because it's their investment dollars that are being managed by these institutional investors. So I think that's the real tragedy here is that there are people that can't afford to lose this money, that, that have lost the money. And that's when government regulation needs to step in and make sure that this doesn't happen again. That sort of leads me into this question of a theory you came up with. You know, there's this, there's rational market theory, which is, you know, the market is always right. And please correct me if I'm paraphrasing this wrong, but the market's always right. If the Dow closes at 10,000 on a Friday and crashes a thousand points by Monday, then that's what should happen because the market is rational. And you have a theory, the adaptive market hypothesis, which from my understanding is generally that people mainly behave rationally, but can 
overreact during periods of heightened market volatility. And I guess that's sort of what you're saying is they're not acting rational when things are coming really fast at them. Is that the case here? You know, what is the sort of the reasoning behind your theory? And is that, is it been created by, by situations like this? Well, very much so. The, the basic idea behind the adaptive market hypothesis is that financial markets, and I would argue economic interactions in general, are much more like a biological ecosystem rather than a physical system that's subject to immutable laws of motion. You know, we economists, we suffer from a psychological disorder that I call physics envy. You know, we, we would love to have three laws that explain 99% of all economic behavior. And instead we have like 99 laws that explain maybe 3% of behavior. And it's very frustrating to us. And so the problem with physics envy is that if we believe that these immutable laws are governing our economy, we then take various different actions, assuming that those never change. But in fact, what we have is a very complex, dynamic ecosystem of different species of investors, brokerage firms, institutional pension funds, and so on. And we interact in ways that are much more like these species that adapt to changing behavior. So in that case, if you look at the world with the lens of adaptive markets, you see that during periods of normalcy, it does make sense that markets are pretty accurate and they are a good measure of value. But every so often we see periods where investors either become irrationally exuberant or irrationally fearful. And in those two extremes, market prices have very little bearing on underlying value. So I think we need to understand that dynamic, first of all, and then we need to ask ourselves, are we prepared to deal with those periods of irrational exuberance or fear. And, and if we are, then I think we can deal with a lot of these ups and downs. But most people aren't aware of them. They take markets as being generally pretty rational. And you know, 90% of the time they're right. The problem is that that 10% when markets freak out, that's a problem for many people, particularly those who are close to retirement and they really can't afford to, to lose the money that uh, ultimately they are exposed to. I want to ask that just from your own study, I'm, you know, I know you use machine learning as well, and thank you for publishing that article itself using statistical machine learning about studying these drug approvals at the HDSR. And, but I want to ask you just from your personal experience, like how much your research now is influenced by this kind of machine learning thinking, these pattern recognitions, you know, how much you're relying on these hard, you know, I shouldn't say hard statistical theory, but at least they are harder than the machine learning theory that, you know, what is the data science impact on your personal, you know, research? So machine learning has been transformative for my research agenda. And it really began years ago when I first applied this to consumer credit problems, trying to understand whether certain consumers would default on their credit card debt and others would not. And I realized that economists have really been behind in terms of applying these computational tools largely because we'd like to understand what our models are telling us. We'd like to develop intuition for why certain predictions are being made. And at the time, these machine learning models were really black boxes. Of course, since then, there's been a lot of development in tools that provide transparency for these machine learning forecasts. So we now can actually figure out what the underlying features are that give rise to these forecasts. But since then, I've actually started applying these tools to other problems, and it's just amazing how effective they are. 
And I think this is the part that really frustrates both economists and, and frankly, some statisticians, because statistics has been about forecasting for many hundreds of years. And yet these computational tools that at the first seem rather simplistic and you know, not particularly sophisticated, they just work really well. And it's very frustrating. But ultimately, I think there has to be some kind of, of a coming together between statisticians and computer scientists, because you know, obviously both individuals deal with data. And as a result, they have a lot to contribute to understand how these tools work. So I know that you, Shali, have been doing a lot of work in this area, and many of your colleagues in statistics have now developed much deeper understanding of the underlying statistical inference behind machine learning. One of the problems with machine learning early on, and the reason that economists rejected that literature at first, is because there is no measure of standard errors when you're making a forecast. And of course, now we do have tools that are able to calculate the accuracy of a machine learning forecast. So uh, I think the two fields are eventually going to come together in a very productive way. We're already seeing that now with conferences that feature statistical inference machine learning and so on. But I think that economists are probably late to the game. We, we really need to start uh, developing more and more of an understanding of how our economic models can work collaboratively with these machine learning tools to be able to improve the way that we make our economic forecasts. Right. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think the statisticians, uh, I think we're probably still going through this period. You know, you know how you you uh, you start first a denial and then you've gradually accept and then you join and you know uh, that process um but i think uh, you know i obviously have given lots of thought on that particularly um you know editing the harvard data science review really opened my mind and uh talking to people like you and others and um but there's always one side of me thinking about you know uh, any scientific inquiry requires a multiple perspective every discipline has its own Responsibility probably statistician does have more the responsibility about you know being more critical. Um, if particularly um, as statistician, you know we sometimes joke, which probably sometimes not even a joke, that you know when you when you torture data, the data will confess, right? And and so the machine learning is a great way of torturing data. Uh, and um, and sometimes you know sometimes the confession is the right confession, uh, sometimes is is just made up. So the question that I have to you, because you're being, um, you know, you're being such a thoughtful leader, and I know you have incredible experience in many ways. How do you guard your ex yourself when you see these patterns not to be, you know, attracted too much, uh, and and you know, just because of the patterns so attractive, and we're very good at interpreting things into the ones we want. Like, what is the mechanism you use yourself, and are you how you teach the students? to guard against that, that kind of tendency when you're using these machine learning algorithms? Well, I think the first step is to acknowledge that you will never be able to eliminate the problem of overfitting and that there's mm -hmm. always a possibility that you're fooling yourself. I mean, that's true with typical statistical estimators as well. And you know, maybe the difference is that statisticians grow up understanding that from day one. We, we know that there's always a standard error around our forecast. and and that we're liable to overfit the data. I think that the ultimate way that we economists deal with it is to try to develop a deeper understanding of the underlying mechanisms, the economic mechanisms that give rise to these patterns. And that's maybe something that computer scientists don't spend as much time focusing on, 
simply because of the sheer volume of their data in the applications that they deal with, like image recognition or um, uh, some kind of uh, you know pattern recognition among large large pools of data, you don't really need to worry as much um, about that underlying motivation. You know, probably the first example of data science being really effective was the Netflix challenge, uh, where mm -hmm. put out all sorts of data about how people chose movies to watch, and they use those algorithms to protect somebody's preferences. That was an example where you had so much data that it really didn't matter what the underlying model was. You didn't understand why it was that somebody enjoyed romantic comedies or slasher movies. You just knew that they did and that you could forecast it. But for economic applications where we don't have big data, we have generally kind of small data, the overfit problem is much more serious. So we have to supplement the data analytics with some kind of economic motivation for the underlying patterns. So I, I think that that's really where the tension lies and, and where the, the, the cost and benefit of data science really comes into play. I think we have to supplement with economic models, situations where we don't have as much data, but areas where we have lots and lots of data, we don't need as much of the modeling. So I think it's trying to find that balance in the various different applications that ultimately gives rise to the most successful data science modeling. I feel like we've talked a lot about what sort of data science has done for statisticians in terms of our ability to model or for economists, but I want to get a little bit to what we can do for the general public or what data science could do for the general public. You know, what would feel so difficult to me is how overwhelming the markets can feel, you know, the ups and downs. Going back to my dad, you know, he, I, I call him, I call him his green or his red days based upon the color of the stocks on his phone, you know, and whether he has a good or a bad day based upon that. And, you know, this, this noise, these ups and downs can really consume you as probably a seasoned investor and as just a general public investor to the point where you really can't see the, what is it, the trees through the woods or whatever that saying is. So is there, are there data science tools that can be developed? to really help the general public deal with the volatility or the noise of these markets to be able to make good decisions? Well, there is. There are lots of ways that data science can actually address that issue, and we're seeing it happening this year, as a matter of fact. So first, let me start by saying that what causes the most stress among investors is the unknown. People have talked about the fact that investors are perfectly willing to take risk, but they really hate uncertainty. And you know, most of us assume that risk and uncertainty are synonyms, but economists actually use them in very different contexts. An economist defines risk as the unknown that you can quantify through probability theory and statistics. But the unknown unknowns, the things that you can't quantify, they call uncertainty. And so investors, are not afraid of risk. They take risk all the time. What investors really freak out about is the unknown unknowns, the uncertainty. And so your dad, like most investors, when they see the stock market going down by 20% and they don't understand why or how or when it's going to come back, that's what causes panic. So how do we deal with that? Well, we deal with it like we deal with most other situations about the unknown. We have to turn the unknown into the known. And in particular, the challenge in the stock market dynamics is to develop a narrative. So humans, we don't respond to numbers and we don't even respond very often to graphs and, and complicated diagrams. What we respond to are stories. 
narrative. We need a story. So the stock market crashed 20% as it did in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit US shores. What was the narrative? And I think if we were able to explain to your dad and other investors that the market is down because people are worried about the impact of the pandemic, but we understand what it will do. We've seen pandemics before. It will have very devastating consequences to a number of people in the short run, but as an economy, we're going to come out of this just fine. It's just going to take a year, two, or three. And so if you can afford to hold on to your investments, not sell, if you can afford not to panic, then it'll all be okay. If we had that narrative, I think that that would have reduced market turmoil considerably. So how do we do that? Well, financial advisors provide that narrative in some context, but not everybody has a financial advisor. The problem with AI is that it hasn't managed to do that yet until this year. With the advent of ChatGPT, we now have an ability to generate narratives, which is extraordinary. And I've used ChatGPT a bit over the course of the last few weeks, and I'm blown away by what you can do with it, by how responsive it is, by how human the narratives are. And so I believe that over the course of the next few years, we're going to see dramatic progress in the financial marketplace where we make use of modern AI, particularly natural language processing algorithms that are able to generate not just reasonable responses, but actual narrative that can calm a consumer's fears about the future. And if that happens, we're going to see dramatic progress in all sorts of financial products and services. I think that's a really interesting uh, insight. I started play with ChatGPT last night as well, and I was uh, very impressed that I asked ChatGPT to give me uh, strategies for Harvard Data Science Review to do outreach to fundraising. It gave me six bullet points. I look at it with them and say, "Hey, I can implement this." You know, that that was pretty pretty impressive. So I asked it to summarize my work, and it come back with a summary. Said who I am was all fine. It gave, said here's a sample of four papers. And none of them I wrote. One of them does not even exist. Others was written by other people. So obviously there's something made up. So at this moment, if those uh, financial advice given by ChatGPT, how much the public should uh, trust it? At this point, when it comes to financial advice, I would be extremely cautious about trusting advice from ChatGPT. I don't think the AI is at a point now where we can really turn over our finances to, uh, to its advice because really this is the first generation of this level of natural language processing and we're still working out the bugs i think that for certain tasks it's perfectly fine for example summarizing the literature or producing a shopping list or getting advice on how to cook a piece of salmon i think that that's relatively straightforward when it comes to developing the narrative uh, for things like financial advice medical advice personal advice for relationships, I would be extremely cautious about taking ChatGPT at face value because it's just not there yet. But the fact that it's improving all the time means that it may not be too long before we can rely on it for that kind of advice. Maybe it's five years, three years, I don't know. But I think that the future uh, where we are able to use these AIs for making very important human decisions, it's, it's now reachable, I think, in our lifetimes. 
by saying that you are implying the human intelligence at some point probably is reachable. I don't know if you are implying that, but it, it sounds like you are very optimistic about it. And the current ChatGPT does give a sense of what can come, but there's also a fundamental question is, are these just low-hanging fruits so this machine can do it? Are there some limits by this kind of pattern recognition without really understanding it? And uh, how close can we get to the human intelligence or maybe even exceed it, right? Because ultimately, we hope the machine can do things we cannot do. Well, that's a very deep question, and I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer it. I'm certainly not a neuroscientist or a philosopher, but I can tell you from my own perspective as a researcher in economics and having written about intelligence from an evolutionary perspective with some mathematical models that I developed, I have a very specific view of what intelligence is. And in my view, I can answer the question that you asked, but first let me describe what that view is. So for me and for the mathematical models that I developed, intelligence is really captured as an adaptation that provides you with an advantage for survival. That's it, plain and simple. Whether it's the opposable thumb or the ability to solve differential equations, the idea behind intelligence in all cases, from my perspective, is some type of human adaptation that allows us to increase our chances for survival. And if you agree that that is the definition of intelligence, then I would argue that AI is already here in terms of being able to display a certain degree of intelligence. And as it evolves, as this AI becomes more sophisticated, it will at some point achieve the same or greater level of intelligence as humans. You know, in fact, you could argue that, that the, the idea of self-awareness, sentience, is a form of intelligence that comes with a certain degree of processing power. So at some point, this AI may become self-aware simply because of the ability to process and detect patterns in various different guises and contexts. You know, the human brain has about 100 billion neurons. That's a big number, but that's a finite number. And it's a number that can be replicated in silico. And the human being, being as unique as we are, it is a product of evolution. Who's to say that we won't get the same level of evolutionary adaptation from our machines? So more and more as scientists study the nature of human thought and how the brain works, it seems that what we are able to do is not so unique, but it's really computation at a certain level of, of sophistication. So in other words, uh, human cognition is really a matter of degree rather than something that is just totally unique. And so from my perspective, based upon what I imagine intelligence is, I think we're already there to a certain degree and, and we're gonna see exponential progress over the course of the next decade or two uh, in various different types of AI that at some point will become self-aware and that we will then have a whole new field that we have to deal with, which is the ethics of AI and, and how we as humans relate to the machines. You know, you talk about how there's the chance that it could develop this awareness. And I can't help but look at the chat GPT issues of bias, where bias, you know, we've seen in all algorithms, that's bias has been one of the biggest issues, I think, with machine learning. And 
you know, for example, if you ask ChatGPT to write a paragraph about why fossil fuels will be good for human happiness, it says, I'm not able to do that because I don't believe in fossil fuels. They're bad for climate change and I, I refuse to do that. It goes against my ethics, which is clearly a person putting that in, not a not the machine choosing that. So will these chat GPTs be able to get the awareness to understand their own bias, to overcome the bias issues that we've seen over and over again permutate machine learning? Well, that's another deep question. And, you know, given that humans can't even see their own biases in many cases, I don't know that chat GPT is going to be any different. I think it'll be a challenge. And one of the differences, though, in how we can approach it is since we are designing chat GPT, we have the ability to incorporate some form of bias detection and bias correction at the very outset. The fact that we are aware of the existence of bias means that we can actually do something to prevent it. And I, I think it's a very positive trend. Uh, you know, there's been talk, for example, over the last few years about Asian hate. And I have to say that when I grew up in New York in the 1960s and 70s, I experienced Asian hate as well. But you know, we didn't call it Asian hate at the time. We called it Tuesday, Saturday, Friday, and all the other days. But with the fact that we are giving it a name means that we can actually start to manage it. And so I think we are making progress as a society. And the fact that we are building these systems now means that we have a chance. Doesn't mean it'll happen, but we do have a chance to incorporate some of these bias detection and bias correction algorithms at the very outset. And so we may be able to develop intelligence that ultimately is fairer than we are and maybe wiser than we are. I would imagine that, you know, the problem with the human has bias because, you know, as you said, each one of us only has this many neurons, right? We only have this way of thinking. The chat GPT or any of these models, these, these algorithms, supposedly will be able to kind of synthesize all kinds of opinions, right? So if it really does it, it should do, uh, accumulate, it could possibly be better than any single individual trying to correct the bias because whenever we're trying to correct a bias, we inject our own bias. Well, the ultimate goal from a societal perspective is to do the greatest good for the greatest number. I think that we all agree that that kind of utilitarian perspective pervades much of our public policy and our laws and our general actions. The problem is the greatest good for the greatest number doesn't necessarily guarantee that everybody is going to be brought along and favored in that way. And so the greatest good for the greatest number may mean that there is a, a significant subset that will be marginalized and there's just not a whole lot we can do about it. The bottom line is that because resources are finite, we are dealing with a zero sum game in human society. And that means that there are gonna be winners and losers. I think the idea behind bias though, is that all of us want a fair shot at being able to win as opposed to automatically being predetermined to lose. And so I think the greatest good for the greatest number ultimately has to have a statistical angle to it, which is that there has to be some mechanism by which all of us are given an equal probability of succeeding in certain respects. And I don't know if that's possible. I'm not even sure that uh, that's the way that our society is currently set up. But that does seem to be what we are groping towards, that we realize that they're going to be winners and losers, but we just don't want to be predetermined to lose from day one. We want to all have a shot 
at being able to achieve the American dream. I'm quite sure the statistician is very happy to hear what you just said because this goes back to the most basic statistical sampling scheme is simple random sampling. Ensure everybody has equal chance of being selected. Even most people will not be selected because it's a small sample. But it's a notion of the uh, you know being included with the equal chance. So let me get to uh, the the end of every episode. We always talk about uh, the magical wand. So the question is that if you could give Everyone, one piece of investment advice they should follow, and if you can wave the magic wand,、uh, what that would be? Well, I think the one piece of advice is that there does not exist one piece of advice for financial management, and so one size does not fit all. And you should be wary of people that are trying to sell you that kind of advice. <laughs>、um, I think the more sophisticated answer to that is financial markets are highly dynamic. And that you need to be equally dynamic in how you respond to them. That means educating yourself about different financial options and keeping track of the amount of fees you're paying. Low-cost mutual funds are better than high-cost mutual funds on average. And、um, just、uh, diversify your portfolio and、um, spend more time learning about financial markets. You know the. The world we live in today is a lot more complicated than 20 years ago. That's true with virtually every aspect of our lives, whether it's technology or health,、uh, and certainly financial markets is no different.、Uh, in the same way that you know the old advice for your diet of you know eat till your heart's content is no longer the the,、uh, the best advice, and you have to worry about carbs and, and and the amount of sugar you're taking in. That same set of sophisticated situations have arisen in financial markets as well. So you need to educate yourself in the various different ways you can invest your money and、uh, protect your assets for the future. Man, I was looking for a like buy low, buy low, sell high kind of thing here, but I like this one is is more thoughtful. That, that works too. <laughs> Thank you so much for this absolutely. Insight for a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor. And、uh, the Harvard Data Science Review is a fantastic outlet for all things data science. And I、uh, continue to、uh, learn from that every issue. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HSDR. A special thanks to our producers Rebecca McLeod and Tina Toby Mack, and assistant producer Ari Frank. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Everything data science and data science for everyone. Thanks so much for listening.